Welcome to the latest II Funds Fan podcast. I'm Carl Caldwell, Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. And for this episode, I'm joined by Tom Bailey, ETFs Editor at Interactive Investor. Later, I'll be chatting to Richard Penny, Manager of the Crooks UK Special Situations Fund, which looks for mispriced opportunities in the UK market. I'll also be speaking to Theodore Diloff, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor, about the decision to remove BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust from Interactive Investor's Super 60 rated list. But before all that, me and Tom are going to chat through a couple of news items in the fund's world. So let's start off with the news that Columbia Threadneedle has reopened its commercial property fund, which has been shuttered since March. It is the first fund that invests exclusively in bricks and mortar to reopen. In June, BMO Property Growth and Income reopened its doors, but the portfolio has a lower exposure to physical property assets than many of its competitors, holding around 30% in physical property. Tom, do you mind running us through why Columbia Threadneedle are a step ahead of other funds in terms of reopening? Yeah, so Columbia Threadneedle, alongside many other UK funds, suspended trading back in March after their independent property value had said that property had become impossible to value accurately in the face of all the COVID-19 market panic. However, with lockdown restrictions now easing and the property market beginning to come back to life, Columbia Threadneedle's independent property valuer gave it the green light to reopen, saying that its assets can now be valued correctly. But as you said, Columbia Threadneedle is one of the only few to reopen so far with most still suspended. For example, the FT recently reported that Janus Henderson's open-ended property fund will remain closed due to the worry that they expect to see a surge of redemptions upon reopening, which would force them back into suspension. So the fund is, is going to remain closed for the time being in order to try and raise the liquidity needed to meet these expected redemptions. There's also the added uncertainty at the moment in regards to how uh, these open-ended property funds will be structured in the future. For example, there's been a lot of talk about withdrawal notice periods possibly being introduced. Yes, that's correct. Um, These notice periods have been proposed by the Financial Conduct Authority in order to address the liquidity problems faced by open-ended funds that hold liquid investments. The term notice periods refers to the gap, for instance, weeks or months between the point at which an investor would submit a redemption request and then the subsequent pricing and execution of that transaction is then carried out. But At this moment in time, there's no real clarity in regards to how long these uh, notice periods will be if they are introduced. The speculation that um, the the notice period could be three or six months. We will, of course, keep listeners to this podcast updated on this and also readers of our website, ii.co.uk. Moving on, Tom, a new ETF fund launch from uh, BlackRock has caught your eye. No surprises to see it is focusing on the ESG space. BlackRock has decided to launch this new range of ESG multi-asset ETFs for investors in the UK and Europe. And the range is made up of three different ETFs with ESG screen stock and bond allocations based on the usual kind of three different risk profiles investors might have. This is all part of BlackRock's broader push into ESG and socially responsible investing. You can see the company's enthusiasm for it in CEO Larry Fink's letter to shareholders and clients where he often says stuff like sustainability should be the new standard for investing. But also, in my view, it should be seen as an attempt by BlackRock to distinguish itself from its big competitors like Vanguard and in the US State Street. Because all these big ETF and index fund providers now offer funds and ETFs with ultra low fees, less than 10 basis points a lot of the time. 
So they've got to find new ways to compete and stand out. So it seems like BlackRock kind of sees going on the ESG route as a way to do this. I mean, to me, it is clear that this is just a, another extension of the trend at the moment that ESG is very fashionable. Investor interest has never been higher. And, you know, this has prompted um, a number of um, fund launches, both in the active management and passive space. And um, there's some interesting um, stats from Morningstar, the data provider, which um, found that on a global scale, there have been 84 sustainable passive funds launched in the first half of 2020. Last year, new fund launches hit a record high of 98. So this is likely to be surpassed in 2020. In January, I think, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, said in his letter to clients or shareholders that they plan to double the number of ESG ETFs they had on offer. So kind of definitely the trend. The next part of the podcast is our fund manager interview. And I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Penny, Manager of the Crooks UK Special Situations Fund. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. The fund invests in good businesses that you believe have been mispriced by the market. To start off with, could you explain the sort of criteria and qualities you look for to find shares that are, for whatever reasons, out of favour? Yeah, I think I think key to understanding this is, is we're trying to make good investments and not just buy good businesses. So the kind of good businesses we like are growth businesses with high return on capital. And a lot of people you talk to would say we do that. But for a good business uh, to be a good investment, you've got to buy at the right price. And so some of the very large good businesses that are out there that have got maybe good track records over five, 10 years, 15 years, right at the minute, they're very expensive. So I don't see the upside particularly in those. So because of the way that I do this, predominantly growth at a reasonable price with a few recovery stocks, we sometimes buy the large companies, and we're tending to buy the large companies at the minute on a contrarian basis. So clearly there are a lot of the businesses at the minute not doing as well as they have done historically, but that's an opportunity often to buy those, as long as not permanently impaired. And then actually I uh, also major on the sort of mid and small and micro caps even, and I particularly specialize in sort of software and uh, life sciences. And the reason for that is that they're growth sectors, but they've also got intellectual property. And that means that they can hang on to the returns that they make. And a particular strong strategy for me over the years is, is looking in the small cap market under, say, three or 400 million, where, where there aren't a lot of investors. You know, it's an inefficient market. There are uncovered gems, if you like. And finding things that maybe sort of play to themes that are really strongly valued, perhaps in large cap land, perhaps in, in Europe, or or often actually on the NASDAQ in the US. And um, sometimes when there's a market break, it can really play to either finding large companies on a contrarian basis, or finding some of these really interesting sort of growthy technology stocks. In terms of um, 2020 so far, it's been a very tricky year for UK funds, you know, whether you adopt a growth or an income focus. Did the um, magnitude of the sell-off in the first quarter surprise you? Yes, it did, because even looking at COVID and sort of working out how long that might last for, a lot of the share prices seem to defy a rational response. Uh, I mean, subsequently, I think what we found is that there was a lot of kind of liquidity issues across all market cap spectra, really. So in the large cap world, I think there may have been redemptions, but there, there may even have been program trades or something that's been selling things. Um, and it was an oversold market, but also in the in the small and the micro cap, you would have people that were trading on CFDs who would get stopped out of positions. I think that happens on a global basis, really. And, and you know, with more computer trading and, and, and trading systems that don't necessarily trade off 
fundamentals per se. I think there is more of this correlation and, and a propensity for markets to overreact, but it, it, it certainly was an overreaction. We, we know that now with hindsight, but at the time it felt that way too. So I assume you use the overreaction as an opportunity to, um, to go bargain hunting essentially. Well, we do, and we have done, and um, yeah, we, we've done well. I mean, we weren't positioned for the downturn. I don't think anybody could have foresaw exactly what happened. You know, where we were seeing value is in financials, but and and we tend to be underweight defensives. That's been a sort of long-term stance of mine, not least because they are low-growth stocks that are pretty expensive, which is totally contrary to our style. But in answer to the question, yeah, absolutely. There were some businesses taking a big hit where we were able to buy them, and then some of the smaller sort of growth areas you know, we were able to buy those in the small cap line very, very cheaply. Could you maybe give us a flavour of a couple of stock examples that you added to in, in March? Yeah, certainly. I mean, in, in in the large cap land, I would say, that, I mean, the UK in, on average is cheap, but um, it's probably the cyclicals and the financials that are where the cheapness are. And those, those are slightly contrarian. But a, a couple of names that stuck out for me would be Prudential, which is, I mean, it's a, it's a growth stock. It's got that southeast east asian growth you go on the website and look at the presentations it's just been you know 10 15 years of double digit growth in that business it tends to get stuck in the bucket with the rest of the uk financials it is actually an asian business that's got superior long-term growth prospects it's cheap that was one to add um they did well when they demerged m and g last year but they're going to demerge business called jackson which is the us subsidiary that makes it a pure play next year also jackson perhaps be a reason why some people choose not to, to 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 own it, but getting rid of that removes some of the obstacles. Elsewhere, I mean, in terms of cyclicals, you know, sometimes when we have a market sell-off like this, by taking a slightly longer-term view, you can buy things that are cheap. One for me that was like that is Whitbread, where the balance sheet is strong and they've got a lot of freehold property. As with most of these t- type of names, it's slightly counterintuitive. You know, discount hotels. Um, it has been a growth sector. Clearly, it's been impacted by COVID nineteen. But uh, to me, a lot of that's in the price. The price has come back from forty eight to twenty three quid today. A lot of their competition are in disarray. Their independence and travel lodge has got too much debt. So I think some of the supply might go to the marketplace. You know, they did very well in two thousand and nine. They went from eight to eleven percent. I think they'll do that again as, as some of the competition go out to the marketplace. And I think. Ultimately, people will, on a longer-term view, they'll go to football matches, have christenings and weddings, and um, you know that should return for, for, for patient investors. We're nearly six months on now from, obviously, the end of March when markets hit the bottom. Are you still finding plenty of recovery opportunities? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's more in the, in the small and mid-cap names and 60 to 70% of the fund in those kind of areas. In the large-cap universe, there's still a few companies you look at and go, um, it's a bit of a way off recovery. It doesn't need some more capital. And I think of names like Rolls Royce. Will that be coming and asking for it? So we have the slider rule on some of those, but but definitely down in the in the mid and small cap and indeed micro cap. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's still companies out there that uh, you know maybe they're struggling and their profits are down a bit and they need to raise money. Sometimes you get a a triple discount for the small businesses because they're small because they need to raise money. Uh, because of you know institutions have fallen out of love with the with the smaller businesses, and when those triple that triple discount unwinds, so, I mean those can be the businesses that make you um, super returns if you're patient on a three to five year view. What's the sort of split at the moment between say large, mid, and small cap um, in your funds? 
Yeah, so 30% large cap, 27% mid cap, and about 30% small cap with with a residual of cash. The large cap would tend to be some of those the, the cyclicals and the financials where I think there's a long-term recovery. The odd, the odd growth at reasonable price like the Prudential. And no feature in the top 10 for anybody who looks at the fund because we, we run those in bigger positions. And then the mid and small caps are more of your sort of growth ideas with in particular the, the bottom 30% of small caps being some of the growth stocks, particularly in life sciences uh, and software, uh, where I see sort of themes going on, as I say, in, in the US and, and elsewhere in the world where we can participate cheaply. Or indeed in the small caps, out and out recovery stocks where they may be having a particularly bad year and need some money, but we, we can buy into them on a very cheap basis. And as part of the exposure to the small cap names, do you invest in APM stocks as well? Yeah, I do. A, a lot of that 30%, um, which is which is kind of a maximum order of 25%, is in the AIM stocks. These tend to be newer businesses. It tends to be where most of the life sciences and software businesses are. Now, we've, we've got a portfolio of 20 or 25, and obviously there are hundreds and hundreds of AIM stocks. So there is a, a benefit from my point of view of sort of meeting one of these companies a day and having over the years, seen many of them and, and specialized in software and healthcare and life sciences and kind of knowing, if you like, which ones we, we should be backing at times like this and which ones not to. Now, whilst we don't get them all right in, in the past, you know, identifying these big trends uh, and trying to find the, the interesting ones have, has been particularly rewarding. Uh, and then the, the upside can be multiples. And even this, this year from the March lows, some of the life sciences stocks such as Max site and Open Orphan and indeed Omega Diagnostics have returned well over 100% to the fund for the holding that we've had. Finally, the UK is a very unloved market at present. The latest figures from the Investment Association show that 912 million was withdrawn from UK funds in July. What do you think the catalyst will be for UK investors to return to their home market? You're right to highlight the UK investors, but I think also there's, you know, 50% of the UK market is owned by international investors as well. And for, for them, the political uncertainty and the currency uncertainty has been a no-go. Perhaps going back as far as 2016, we hear that those kind of guys are underweight. So removing the uncertainty around Brexit, um, clearly removing COVID would be positive in absolute terms for UK investors in general, but relative to other parts of the world, it, it's kind of the Brexit uncertainty. Now, the good news about that is that the UK has substantially underperformed the rest of the world since 2016. It, it may well be that pretty much whatever the outcome, people will then now see this as a cheap market. We, we, we've done the work and we think if, if you look at the average of the last 10 years profits, the UK, the UK market is cheap and should give you double digit returns over the long term. Um, it's, a cheap, it's a market to buy. If you can remove the uncertainty, then I think perhaps the internationals and, and certainly the UK investors should come into it and have a look. Thank you again for your time today, Richard. For the final part of the podcast, I'm joined by Theodore Diloff, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor. Rather than our usual format, I have for this episode asked Theodore to explain a change that has been made to the Super 60 rated list. The change concerns BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust, which was removed from the Super 60 last week. Theodore, can you explain why this decision was made? First of all, I need to mention that in recent years, frontier markets as a whole have been struggling and underperformed both emerging and developed markets, which has negatively impacted the performance of funds that invest exclusively in this very niche part of the market. 
BlackRock Frontiers is now the only existing investment trust that invests in frontier markets. And so its performance started to deteriorate when the managers made the decision to expand their investable universe and create the new bespoke benchmark in April 2018. The reason for this was the constant evolution of the MSCI Frontier Markets Index and continuous reclassification of frontier countries into emerging. However, the trust underperformed both its tailored benchmark as well as the MSCI Frontiers and emerging markets indices. In addition, the attribution analysis for the last 12 months showed that the underperformance was primarily driven by poor stock selection. And therefore, it's our belief that the trust is no longer a suitable option uh, for our clients. In terms of the sort of wider universe of frontier market focused funds, I know there's only a small selection of them, but how have they fared over the past three and five years? Yes, you're quite quite right. Uh, The number of actively managed portfolios in different tier market spaces is actually quite limited. We have done performance analysis of all strategies that showed all of them had underperformed the MSCI frontier market index over three and five year rolling periods. As an example, uh, the average frontier markets fund delivered around 22% over five years and a negative return of minus 15% over three years, while the MSCI index returned 41% and just below 0% over the same time period. So for investors wanting exposure to frontier markets and obviously are happy to um, to be quite adventurous, what would you suggest? Taking into account the current market environment, we believe that it might be a better option for investors looking to gain exposure to frontier markets to consider broader emerging markets funds or investment trusts that includes frontier markets in their investable universe. This could limit the risk uh, to a certain degree without compromising the uh, diversification benefits of meeting small emerging and frontier markets. Thank you for the update, Theodore, and um, thank you to Tom Bailey and to Richard Penny. We'll be back at the start of October for the next Funds Found podcast.